Hello again. I'm Morgan Roberts, one of the retired pastors whose joy and privilege it is to be worshiping at Church of the Palms and under the fine friendship and leadership of Pastor Steve McConnell. Uh, let's center down and get our hearts and minds ready for today's meditation by listening to some lovely music. Our scripture lesson today is one single verse. Oh, there's more surrounding it, but we need only look at the single verse. And that single verse from the Gospel of John, the eighth chapter and the 12th verse, reads like this. I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Now, there's a companion verse from the 12th chapter of John that says about the same thing, but says it in a different way. And for some reason, I remember it in the words of the old King James, and it starts out by saying, I am come a light into the world that whosoever believes in me should not abide in darkness. So what's so special about this verse? Well, what's special about this verse is that it is the very first Bible verse that I ever knew. Now, I'm talking about uh, something that I learned, uh, this verse in about 1938. It could have been 1937, but I think it's 1938. And so someone will say right away, well, that's not very extraordinary, all kinds of kids who go to Sunday school, who learn some small Bible verse long before they are 10 years old, except that I didn't go to Sunday school. Uh, I didn't go to Sunday school because my, my parents didn't go to church. Uh, these are the years of the Great Depression, and 
you might work for one company, as my father did for the General Electric Company, but that didn't mean you had steady work. So your income was very low, and you felt embarrassed to go to church if you didn't have anything to put in the collection plate. So that's why I say to you I didn't learn it in church or Sunday school, and I learned it in a very odd way. It came really via the family across the street. They were churchgoers. Uh, Mr. Clute taught auto mechanics in one of our city high schools. Mrs. Clute ta taught voice. And uh, they went to church. They had a son a year younger than I, uh, Franklin. And it was through that family that I learned that, this verse. Because every year, they would be visited by a traveling evangelist. Now, I don't know if he held tent meetings someplace. He came with a trailer. But one of his tools of evangelism was to give out little matchbooks. On one side, it said, need a light. And then you turned it over to get your match and light your cigarette. And there was the verse, I am come a light into the world and then he could maybe talk with you about Jesus. Now my guess is that he used these mainly at bowling alleys. You couldn't go into a restaurant and bother people at a table uh, or into a bar. But if you went to a bowling alley, they were smoke-filled in those days, and he'd find plenty of customers to whom he could give his little matchbook. So that's where this verse came from. But that's not a very dignified beginning. And so the question that I came to is, how do you get from such an odd beginning of a little matchbook that's being given out in smoky bowling alleys, how do you get to that to theological seminary, to 40 years of parish ministry, and after that to more interim ministry in four interim churches, and three years on the faculty uh, of a seminary. How do you get from there to here? And I have a negative answer to give to all of this. You get from there to where I am today by rejecting all of the attempts to fix you in a way of salvation. And the attempts to fix me began very early. Shortly after I learned that verse and had this uh, little matchbook, uh, Mr. Clute or Mrs. Clute had heard about a, a Bible study group downtown. They drove us down one Saturday morning. It was in a nice lady's apartment. And she wasted no time in getting to us and telling us that we were lost sinners. There was no hope for us. We were going to burn in hell forever unless we prayed the prayer that she was going to give us, and she had us pray it, in which we uh, asked God to forgive us for all of our sins, and that we accepted Jesus as our Savior, and if we did this, we'd be fixed. Well, it didn't make that much sense to Franklin or to me. I mean, you know, they say if something is too good to be true, maybe it isn't. Maybe it is too good to be true. I mean, how do you get uh, relieved from a sentence of eternal damnation, eternal torture, 
just by saying a little prayer. Or better yet, by the time you're 10 years old, how much sinning can you do? I mean, can you commit so many sins in the first 10 years of your life that you're condemned to an eternity of torture? It didn't make sense, and Franklin and I never went back. For that matter, as the years went on, I kept hearing the same idea for a fix. I mean, it might be over a radio program uh, where some preacher preaches the gospel from some text, and but it always comes down to this invitation to accept Christ as your savior and be delivered from eternal torment. Uh, it m might be a, a TV program of some world-famous evangelist where thousands of people are there and the message is still being preached, but it's still the message basically that it was back when, when we were 10 years old. It's the message of, a friend of mine used to say, turn or burn. Either you believe in Jesus or you burn forever. You can put that into different words. You can put it in a radio program. You can put it in a great auditorium. Uh, you can go someplace, but it's always that same message that just to us as little kids didn't make any sense. Now, it, it could have another wrinkle. It, it became very popular for a while for some evangelists to talk about the rapture. Remember, this is the idea that all of a sudden, in the end times, Jesus, Jesus is going to appear in the heavens, and all of the true believers are sort of being sucked out of the world and drawn up to be with Jesus in the, in the sky, in the heavens, and the rest of the unbelievers are left on earth uh, to wait for the great tribulation. The friend uh, who used to talk about turn or burn called this message, uh, get right or get left. The, these things did not make mistakes, and the ones that were really sort of funny that didn't make any mistake is that you not only had to accept Jesus as your savior, you had to get your life right. And to get your right life, right, right, your life right, you had to give up all worldly entertainments. You had to give up tobacco and alcohol, and that didn't matter because we couldn't buy it anyway. If you were a girl, you had to give up lip, lipstick because that was sort of making yourself a modern Jezebel and an object of temptation to boys. But in particular, you had to give up the movies and you had to give up watching television and you had to give up dancing. Now, how on earth you can find a biblical basis for not going to the movies? I mean, movies didn't even exist at the time of the Bible. And I think there's one uh, verse in which David is dancing or something. But uh, how do you get biblical uh, condemnations of going to the movies uh, and dancing? And the other one was going to roller rinks. Now, I don't know what they're like nowadays, but Roller rings back then were uh, a place where every so often all the lights went off 
and a blue light came on, what's called couples moonlight, and you turn out the lights and flood the hall with this blue light, who knows what's next. Well, all of these fixes I resisted. And the reason that I did is that I read the Bible. Sometime when I was 15 years old, it could be 16, but I think it had to be when I was 15, I, I discovered a New Testament in our attic. I wasn't looking for it, I just happened to find it. Uh, it belonged to my Aunt Susie, it was very old, it was drying out. It was a red letter edition of the New Testament. And I was glad to find it because I had heard over the radio that somewhere in the New Testament, there was a story that Jesus told that was called the parable of the prodigal son. I'd heard about this on the radio because at 10.30 every Saturday night, I turned on WWVA Wheeling, West Virginia, that somehow or other pumped you down to Nashville so I could listen to the Grand Ole Opry. Now, that was not the Opry like it is today from Opryland, a more glitzy affair. This was the old Opry from the Ryman Auditorium in Nashville that featured the comedian Minnie Pearl and Roy Acuff and the Smoky Mountain Boys. And I loved one ballad that Roy Acuff would sing, which was The Prodigal Son. And if there were a guitar picker here, I could sing all of the verses of it. The prodigal son went straight from his father to travel a land of hunger and pain. And now I can see the end of the journey. I'm going to heaven again. From out of the sky, he's coming to meet me, to wash all my sins and call me his own. His servants will bring a ring for my finger and never mo no more will I roam. Thank goodness there's not a guitar picker because there's another verse and I won't, I don't have to sing it to you. But why did I like that verse? I did not feel like the prodigal son. I had not committed any great son in which, as it says in the King James Version, I had gone into a far country and wasted my substance on riotous living. I didn't have any guilt that was being assuaged by singing that. I just liked it, I think, because it talked about such a loving God who's always welcoming us home. And that's as far as I got with it for a while. Until finally, years later, I saw something. That the first part of the story about the prodigal coming home is just the beginning. You don't get to the real meaning of that until you get to the last verse. And when you get to the last verse, what do you see? You see the older son who always behaved and stayed home. He probably would have been a Presbyterian nowadays. And he's sort of stuffy. He is not one uh, who awakens when other, with, in, with, it, uh, with others the festive spirit. And he's not going in to his brother's welcome home party with all of that trash. And so it ends with the real meaning of the parable. It's dark, he's out there, he's not going in, but who's with him? 
His father is with him and the parable ends there because the real meaning of that parable is that God will never give up until all of his children come home. Indeed, all of his children will come home because that decision was made before the foundation of the world. You know, it says in Ephesians, before the foundation of the world, that's before God even made the world, before there were people here, uh, before the Adam and Eve stuff and all of that, God made a decision. It was God's decisions, not ours. And what it says is that we were all destined for adoption as his children. What that says is we are all the children of God. And you can't not become something other than that. Everyone you ever meet is a child of God. Whether we think we're going to make a decision or not, we're all going home. Heaven can't begin until all of us are there. And because it's God's decision, all of us are already there. Do you realize that every person you meet on every day of your life is going to heaven. We live in an enchanted kind of world in which everybody is homeward bound. They may not realize it. And when that happens and they go home, they may find life in the presence of God, something quite other than they thought. The consuming fire of God's love may be painful at first. It may seem like hell before it does heaven, but we're all going home. And we never know when it is. Some of us may have a long life. Some of us may have a life that's shortened. In fact, either you or I, because there's still a few hours left in this day, we may go home today. But what does it mean to finally live in a world in which everyone is going home. Everyone's a child of God. What a heavenly thing it is to realize that we're already, as it were, in heaven. Frank Laubach wrote something once about what it means to live in such a world. I read this to myself almost every day. He says, I have found a way of life and it is very simple, so some simple, that any child could practice it. Just to pray inwardly for everyone everyone meets, and to keep on all day without stopping, even when doing other work or other activities. Yet it transforms life into heaven. Everybody takes on a new richness and all the world seems tinted with glory. That's what it means to live in this enchanted garden in which we're already in heaven, in which everyone is going home. And it can be a very demanding thing to live that way because it means to live in reverence, prayerful reverence, for everyone meets every day because everyone is going home. And you know what? You can start living that way as soon as I, as soon as I stop talking here.
living as though we're already there, as though everyone belongs to God and no one is going to be left behind. We are all God's children and you can begin living that way right now. Try it and may God be with you as you do. Amen.